structure is finished, the damage is done. I watch the trees fall and the animals run. The tiny snail darter once stood in your way. So you up and moved him and dug him his grave. Farewell, little river. Farewell to the land. Farewell, little river. I'm sorry that they did not understand. The big What do I have to say? Whatever you want. The rain is raining. The rain is raining. There's so much rain today. Oh, this is our three-year-old host? (laughs) Yeah, you got it. That's my daughter, Lumi. As you know, Austin, my whole family came along on this reporting trip out to Teleco Reservoir in East Tennessee. And it was a big ask for my husband when I said... I'm getting really sucked into this story behind the Teleco Dam project, and I think we all need to go out there so I can talk to everyone and see this lake. And it was a bit of a harrowing journey for us because everyone got super sick, especially my husband. So I had the girls with me for a couple of the interviews. And by the way, if you, listener, haven't yet heard parts one through four of this series, please go back and listen, and this will all make a lot more sense. It sounds like the weather wasn't very cooperative either. It was pretty rainy the first couple days. Not really great for your general lakeside getaway. Oh, and there were those thousands of swarming mosquitoes that got Gene Branson and me. <laughs> I don't think I've ever had so many mosquitoes. I've never had this many at once. all. No, I haven't. I haven't. This is pitiful. I still kind of wonder if everything my family went through while we were there was a result of all the bad blood. The sort of strange energy that hangs there around the lake. But of course, that's just my own superstitiousness. Well, I'm not going to tell you that it wasn't, but you did take some really amazing pictures out there. Kind of ominous fog hanging over everything. Yeah. Of course, the lake is lovely, but I really wanted to experience the river valley that used to be there. It's been described as one of the most important rivers of our country due to its 12,000-year history of human habitation and the importance for British colonizers of taking control of this river by force from the Cherokees. And now we know that its life also ended amidst broiling controversies that defined what legal protections endangered species have in this country. This is the story of Tanasi. The epic battle to save the little tea is over and the river is gone. Yet the memories left from this river and their fight are still vivid in the minds of a few. Some of those people remain bitter, but others find themselves better off. In part five of our series, What Remains, A Rock, A Fence, and A Silver Lining. On Middle of Everywhere, Sharing big stories from the small places we call home. I'm Austin Carter. And I'm Ariel Avery. Who will record this because there's a very nice lady who works for uh, National Public Radio out of Kentucky who wanted to have a sense of the voices around this circle. A few people who were involved in fighting for the river still gather every few years even though they're all spread around the country. They have these potlucks, 
Actually, one just happened at the end of April. And Zig agreed to help me out by recording everyone's thoughts as they spoke around a circle at this last gathering. Thank you. We, we owe this family so much. Look at this place. And there's something else. When they were taking a bike ride, Charles and Pamela saw this place and hadn't been intending to buy anything, but they did because they knew we were coming. So, um, They've been gathering at the home of Charles Swanson and Pamela Reeves. Interestingly, Pamela was an undergraduate and one of Zig's students who helped in the Supreme Court case and went on to become a district judge in East Tennessee. And guess whose bench she took over? Oh, I give up. Judge Taylor, the judge who ruled in TVA's favor time and time again. Wow, that's a bit of poetic justice. Right? Anyway, Zig, the tireless fighter, was obviously there as kind of the organizer. David Etnayer, the ichthyologist who discovered the snail darter, was also uh, there. It's been a very, very handsome animal throughout its entire career. Despite some rather demoralizing descriptions it had to overcome, and Carolyn hasn't missed a one of these potlucks. I get rather emotional when I talk about the river and our farm and our community that is now underwater. I am uh, Carolyn Ritchie, and my mom and daddy were Jean and Ben Ritchie. And I'm sure TDA has a pile of files, if they've not shredded them, probably knee-high or beyond on Mama. Alfred and Virginia were there as well. My name's Alfred Davis. And the first thing I want to thank each and every one of y'all for what you've done. And they all kind of shared their side of the story with everyone and a bit about how they feel today. It's just, it was like you sit at the kitchen table when you're little and there's there's everybody, all of us, and then there sits the TBA. They had their seat at the table even though they wasn't there. Does that sound crazy? And I was impressed that they could make light of some of the really strange things that happened to them. Well, wasn't unusual to find the fence cut and the cows out. Cows don't use pliers and cut fences. <laughs> they might squeeze through them, but they can't cut the wire. But I also heard something else. So uh, we stayed. We were one of the last three families. Unfortunately, Burl is gone. Asa and now McCall, we became very close with. And she was a little spitfire, and they had one daughter, Margaret Ellen, and unfortunately Margaret Ellen's gone, and she had no children, so their story is gone, Burl's is gone. I could hear that this story is starting to slip away. Yeah, it's a good thing these conversations were recorded, and Zig and Carolyn's books. 20 years ago when we met, I said, I'm writing a book. (laughs) Well, I am writing a book, and I do have the the draft. Indeed. Because I think this is a story for the ages. Oh, I always start with TVA versus Hill because it set the terms. So we know what happened with the snail darter case as it unfolded, being the first case to represent the Endangered Species Act in the Supreme Court. But what does the case mean for the law and for lawyers today? Uh, my name is Robin Cundis Craig. I'm the Robert C. Packard Trustee Chair in Law at the University of Southern California Gould School of Law in Los Angeles, California. 
I teach water law and we have a whole chapter on the Endangered Species Act and how it influences water law, uh, particularly with big river systems where there are multiple endangered species. Robin said that the snail darter case was an incredibly important one. First off, it came very soon after the Endangered Species Act was enacted. And the case uh, really was asking the question of, is there a reasonableness uh, requirement in the Endangered Species Act? And so one of the big issues in the case was, could the Endangered Species Act step in at that late stage of the development and basically say this dam should not be completed. And the Supreme Court said yes. The other thing that was very important about the case was that the Supreme Court said that an injunction is the normal remedy. This was unique because in most cases, the normal remedy is for the offending party to pay damages and continue on with whatever they were doing. An injunction stops whatever is going on that violates the act. And that is because these species value is incalculable. It is a very powerful law, and that's part of what the Teleco Dam case established. But what about the amendment to add the God Committee? Does that somehow dilute the power of the Endangered Species Act? It gives a safety valve. Uh, I think most laws that have very potentially harsh consequences, as the Endangered Species Act did after the Supreme Court's decision, it's always helpful to have a, an escape valve, but I also think it helps with the legitimacy of the act to say, okay, yeah, if you're really facing an unusual situation, we've got a high-powered body that can, can hear your case. Like in the scenario where you might be facing loads of human lives that could be lost if a government project is not undertaken which, as we know, was not true of the Teleco project. But, as we also know, that despite the power behind this law and its legitimizing God committee that did not exempt the dam, the dam still got built. So if there's enough political will to build a stupid project, it will get built. Wow, she's pretty blunt about that. And when she says political will, it seems like she really means political power. Yeah, I think you're right. And funny as it is to hear her call the project stupid, it's also really sad to think about the implications of what she said. How do you mean? Well, if there's enough political will, the dying canary in the coal mine, to borrow from Zig's metaphor, won't be enough to get Congress to abort a project that makes no sense. And in this case, it wasn't. The fish died in, in the Little Tennessee River. So, the fish is gone? Well, thankfully, no. What I didn't tell you is that the TVA had actually started an operation in 75 to keep some of the population alive. They attempted to transplant it to a bunch of Tennessee River tributaries, most of which didn't work. And so, for 40 years, they've been working on a successful transplant operation. But it is still surviving in three of those tributaries. So in 84, the snail darter was downgraded from endangered to threatened. 
and last year, in 2021, it was petitioned to be removed from the list, an event that was celebrated by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and the Center for Biological Diversity, and of course, TVA. I have to say that the fish now is surviving. If TVA continues to put oxygen into the river in summer months, and if TVA promises to use the flushing power of the dams so as to have spawning areas available for the fish, then it will survive. But I say to my students, you know, this is not an unmitigated success. It's a constant effort to create and recreate the habitat these fish need. Taking endangered species and throwing them somewhere else is not the way to handle preservation of God's creatures. And this mitigated effort that will continue on indefinitely will come with a monetary cost as well. Oh sure, that's more labor and resources required to create this artificial habitat. In a lot of places we've gotten to the point where the only reason a species can survive in the wild is because we're doing extraordinary life support. So in the river context, uh, served as kind of a red flag for when usually dams, but sometimes other projects have put an entire river at risk. Because what happens with rivers is you get one endangered species, then you get two, then you get three, and pretty soon almost everything that lives in the river is a, either a candidate for or on the endangered species list kind of speaks to that canary in the coal mine metaphor. Yeah. Zig submitted a comment in the form of a five-page letter to the Department of Interior. He outlines all this, but also goes on to make the point that the snail darter will only continue to be protected as long as the TVA is a publicly funded government agency. There have been a couple of attempts to privatize the agency in the last 40 years. And that would eliminate the TVA's expensive responsibility toward protecting the fish. A TVA spokesperson told me that they have invested millions in aerating tributary waters on the French Broad, which is now home to the snail darter. Wow, and that's just one river. So why would privatization free TVA from the responsibility to maintain the snail darter? Well, the snail darter is protected under Section 7 of the Endangered Species Act, which applies only to federal agencies. Ah, and a privatized TVA might not be so interested in carrying on the expensive conservation efforts of the public. Right. So to get back to the economic soundness of this dam we've talked so much about, here's yet another example, 50 years later, of why this dam may continue to be an economic burden. It was only four million bucks. Most of the money was spent condemning the land and building roads and building bridges. Everything that was fine was good. Meaning the other $112 million we heard about was spent to get rid of what was already there? That's right. And when we come back, we'll hear from a current TVA spokesperson and ask them, how does TVA feel about this project now? Support for Middle of Everywhere comes from Kentucky Humanities 
An affiliate of the National Endowment for the Humanities, Kentucky Humanities is dedicated to bringing the humanities to classrooms and communities across the state, promoting literacy and civil discourse, building pride in the Commonwealth, and telling all of Kentucky's stories. Learn more at kyhumanities.org. Hello, we're back. Back and ready to get more answers. This time from the TVA themselves, right? Yes. So I spoke with Scott Fiedler, who is in media relations at the TVA, to understand how TVA frames this project today. You know, the, the project had its warts. I mean, there's, there's no, no denying that. And what he said is consistent with what they say on their webpage. Telling the story of Teleco, it's complicated. Hmm. Yet Scott still describes the project on the whole as a success. Today? The project uh, has been what we, we would say successful for what it was intended for was recreation on uh, TVA waterways. And he spoke to the economic prosperity the dam has brought to the region. You know, looking at the project over time uh, through the lens of history, uh, it, it was strife with controversy. But looking at it today, according to a 2017 University of Tennessee study, the uh, Teleco project brings in about $350 million a year in economic development. Huh. I wonder how they measure that. Yeah, honestly, I have no idea. But I do know that number is not measured against what the River Alternative might have brought in. I asked Patty Zell, TVA's corporate historian, if she knew if they had ever run an analysis on the projected economic benefits of the River Alternative Plan, and she wasn't aware that any analysis on that had ever been done. Hmm. But another thing to think about, outside the purely economic arguments for and against this dam, not to mention the alleged corrupt manner in which it was pushed through, was the way TVA employees dealt with the landowners. We heard about some pretty terrible stuff that happened to the Richies and the Davises. Yeah, no kidding. TVA has learned a lot of lessons from this project, not only how to deal with the new regulations at the time, uh, but also interacting with the public. Uh, TVA is a transparent organization today uh, that engages the public, not only through uh, the NEPA process, which is the National Environmental Policy Act, but also through our website, having public meetings, uh, the board meetings that are public. Uh, so there's a lot more transparency within the organization that you would see today than you would have saw decades ago. Well, that is a positive, I guess. Yeah. Hopefully the transparency equates to fair treatment. But as you know, Austin, maybe one of the biggest questions our whole team has had about this story along the way is, how was TVA able to create the Teleco project in the first place? How did they go from this agency that was created in the 30s to generate public hydroelectric power to this very controversial Newtown project? that condemned people's property on the basis of a dam being built. People who really never needed to move in order for the dam to exist. Some explanation is given in a book, TVA and the Teleco Dam, A Bureaucratic Crisis in Post-Industrial America. It was written by historians William Bruce Wheeler and Michael McDonald. And mom and daddy suspicioned everything they ever suspicioned but they couldn't prove came to be true in that book. But I really wanted to know from Scott, 
how TVA has been able to be so fluid in what kind of projects they undertake. So I asked him if TVA's mission has changed throughout the years. You know, TVA's mission hasn't changed. Uh, it, it, it all comes back to that 1933 mission of improving the lives of the people of the Tennessee Valley. John F. Kennedy said, the work of the TVA will never be completed. As someone who grew up within the purview of the TVA and knows a lot about all the good things that they did for our region, but also what happened to the people around Teleco, that mission seems a little conflicted. Yeah. I don't think Teleco Project could ever happen today due to the way the laws that came out during this time are now interpreted. But there are many arguments today for why TVA is an important agency in maintaining the prosperity of the Tennessee Valley. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, flood control is one major issue that TVA regulates and saves a lot of property from damage and a lot of costs related to that. Sure. But the point is, there are so many issues with this project that were sort of partially uncovered nationally, and so much that didn't get looked at was not fairly assessed when it bubbled to the surface, and now it seems so obvious that this project never should have happened kind of begs the question, what's happening today that will seem so obvious in the future? What habitats are we eliminating that we'll need to recreate for species down the road? I personally think it's a large responsibility that climate change is making much more complicated. Some species need to move. Some species are experiencing temperatures they can't handle, and if we're going to take on the responsibility not only of quote-unquote normal development patterns before climate change, but now also the responsibility for climate change impacts, we really need to get creative. But let's not despair too much because I'm going to flip this coin over one more time and bring out a silver lining around this history of the Teleco project. And that lining belongs to the Cherokees. But what we're trying to do is on the pathway here, the trail, is give people an experience to where they can walk the trail this was a major artery, this little Tennessee River. Mm -hmm. Remember I mentioned at the very beginning of this series that I visited the memorial sites? Yeah. Gene Branson, the chair of the board of the Sequoia Birthplace Museum, was the person who went out there with me. And this is where we were attacked by mosquitoes. Um, there were towns all up and down through here, some close, some a little farther apart. But Chota was the main capital town. And then you had Tanasi downstream. They were out where the water is now, okay. and downstream Tennessee too as well. Okay. And that's how the state of Tennessee got its name from Tennessee, right. like that. But what we're trying to do here- And Gene lives in the area, so he showed me everything he could about what they were trying to accomplish. Here he was showing me how they planned to create a hiking trail to connect the two sites that are right now only connected by road. Okay, so do they own all this land now? Technically, no. The land these sites and the museum are on are in permanent easement to the Eastern Band. Back at the museum, Jean showed me some maps. Ah, uh, more maps. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Of the land easements they currently have. The paperwork was signed in the mid-80s by Chief Young Deer, 
to put this acreage into permanent easement so that TVA could close the locks and back up the water. And the paperwork said that it would go into permanent easement with the understanding that it would go, and I believe I'm choosing the right words, immediately into land into trust. The land into trust was never accomplished. At the time, the Bureau of Indian Affairs said it would just take too long. Well, that was the mid-80s. And it was originally all Cherokee land anyway. It's kind of funny that we have to go through procedures now and buy back land that was taken from us to begin with. Gene and the tribe are doing all they can to get those land parcels into trust. I talked with the principal chief, Richard Sneed, about this issue as well. We have some issues, political issues, obviously, with trying to get the land in trust. So there's a good and a bad. But another good is that the TVA also gave the Eastern Band the option of a 100-year lease on some of their property on the lake. This gives the Eastern Band the option of making money from commercial development. And last year, they announced they would begin building a campground that showcases the Eastern Band. So they can start bringing in revenue once that's up and running. Well, that's great. It is. But on the other side of the coin again, Carolyn pointed out to me that this kind of commercial development and building up of historic sites was all part of the River Alternative Plan that they had submitted to Congress and to the God Committee. And maybe had the River Alternative happened, the Eastern Band wouldn't have had to wait 50 years for this kind of development to happen. Well, that's a good point. I feel another coin flip coming here. (laughs) You're right, catching on. So in my mind... Had the River Alternative Plan happened, I wonder if the Cherokees would have gotten the land easements at all. Because what Chief Sneed described to me was a hostile compromise. You know, there were threats of violence and everything else. People who were close to the situation said things had gotten very heated uh, with, with the protests. And so when the opportunity presented itself to just accept the easements from TVA, that seemed like uh, the, the, the reasonable path at that time. But the promise was that the land would be taken into trust. You can hear a bit of disdain there. Yet another part of the silver lining for the Cherokees comes directly out of the development, which we haven't yet talked about, that is there today, Teleco Village. That's the main housing division that was finally developed, with its first residents moving in in 87. Wow, almost a decade after the gates were closed. Yeah. And Teleco Village has been a great resource for sustaining the museum. We had no operating money from the tribe then. The, money, the tribe didn't have any money. But we, we had what little TVA had given us and lived off of as long as we could. That's where we had our meetings initially, down at the Yacht Club at Teleco Village. And they would have auctions to help us raise funds. They would uh, give boat rides from the Yacht Club up to Sequoia Museum site. We'd have a picnic. Teleco Village, which is a retirement community, has really been kind of pivotal to the museum's continued operations, which has also taken a part in educating Cherokee youth about their own history, something that definitely was not happening 50 years ago. When I uh, was growing up, there was, there was not a great deal of emphasis placed upon um, embracing our culture. In fact, just the opposite. And it was something that I did... I, you know, I didn't understand at the time. I didn't understand why it was that way. I mean, there, there have always been members of our community who um, are very traditional and they cling to traditional um, beliefs and our language. But you have to keep in mind, I mean, there was a concerted effort by the federal government 
when you think about the assimilation period, to wipe out everything native. Ceremonies are now held at the memorial sites, where youth learn about and participate in the traditional practices of their tribe. You can almost feel what these, the children were doing and the adults. So with their very convoluted history of displacement and development in this valley, I tried to get clarity on the overall Cherokee position on the dam. I asked Bob and Jean and Chief Sneed about that. I mean, you've been connected to this lake for quite some time. Do you think TVA has done right by the Eastern Band and the Cherokee? I do, yeah. They didn't have to do what they've done. TVA didn't, I guess. I think now they're in a, in a mode where they want to do more protection, more cultural preservation. Yeah, we're happy in hell right now uh, because we know what our history was over there now. We know where the, where the villages were. We know it's where Sequoia came from. We know that Chota was a, and Nasi were the capitals of the Cherokee. I guess there's two parts to this question. Do you believe the TVA has done right by the Cherokee? And do you believe that they have righted the wrong, all the wrongs? You know, I mean, I'm t thinking about recent history, but also the deep history of the Cherokee in the valley. Well, short answer, no. The reason it's an easy no to say they haven't is because of what I mentioned earlier, which was the mindset of, of the government and Europeans and the way that the government viewed indigenous people as inferior and so forth. Do I think that they're, they're working to right the wrongs? I, I believe so. History's complicated, you know, and if we're gonna be honest with ourselves, there's not a people group on the face of the earth that has clean hands. The damage is done. One thing there's no disputing is that Carolyn is still mourning for the loss of her home. She used to go out with her mother and sisters and collect Easter flowers every year from their home place. They did that for 42 years, until excavations for a new house tore them all out. The barbed wire fence her father put up is still there in an open lot. She took me around the Teleco village area and showed me where various places were while I had a baby strapped to me. I know. We drove out to this boat launch where you could see some of the huge houses across the lake and a small island about 20 feet offshore. And Miss Nellie, the one that was very outspoken, their house was there. So their house was on that island? Their house was on that island. And she took me to her home place, which now is right smack dab in the middle of Teleco Village. Now, unfortunately, I failed to get this part recorded because I guess I was a bit distracted with the baby, but Carolyn did indulge me later and recorded herself driving out there. Out on 444, which is Teleco Parkway, across the road used to be Lee Stooksbury. The road is very well paved. There are small lots, little teeny, what I call postage stamp lots. Uh, there's a man up here walking his dog. My goodness, you could whisper at some of these houses, and you could hear in the other house. They are that close. They've rearranged the landscape before they turned it over to the TRDA because our land was not this roly-poly. I've just made a left that's going to go into this little cul-de-sac. Oh my goodness. And now we're 
circling around and this is where our old barn used to stand and there's a house there. To the left is the pasture where the cows meandered around and had their life and then um, we're up to where there was a, another barn, a second big barn. And then to the immediate right is where the house stood up and the big maple trees are still there. I'm here to the, to the rock. This was a big limestone rock which stuck up out of the earth and was centered right in the middle of this cul-de-sac. Carolyn and her siblings used to climb up onto the rock every morning when they went out to milk the cows. It's the only thing that, the only thing that has not changed. When we were out there looking around, she climbed on top of that rock, holding a picture of it from when it used to be their farm. In the photograph, you can see her father's fence and behind it, the big rock. And behind that, cows dotted against the open landscape. And for a moment, while Carolyn stood up on that rock, I saw the young girl standing there, looking proud as ever, but carrying a grown woman's deep well of heartache. And as she stood there, she was surrounded by a community of ghosts, past, present, and future the generations of lives molded by this river valley that now lie dormant beneath the surface of a lake. The river and the land is just part of you. It's just like you wear it around. It's just uh, something that didn't go away. This episode was edited to reflect that the snail darter was petitioned for delisting in 2021. This was our last episode of the season. Thank you so much for listening and for going on this journey with us through some of America's rivers. We hope you've been inspired and moved by the stories people have shared with us. In case you missed any of this season's earlier episodes, they are all available on our website, Apple Podcasts, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. There you can also find our Season 1 episodes and submit future episode ideas because we are going to get right to work on Season 3. To see images of the remaining fence and limestone rock with Carolyn holding the picture of her family's farm, visit our website at middleofeverywherepod.org or Instagram and Facebook at Middle of Everywhere Pod and Twitter at Rural underscore Stories. And I highly encourage you to sign up for our newsletter. Our marketing director, Dixie Lynn, has been putting together incredibly detailed newsletters that give you even more backstory on this series that couldn't be included in the episodes. You'll see extra images, read side stories, and get to know more details. This episode of Middle of Everywhere was produced by me, Ariel Lavery, with editorial help from my co-host, Austin Carter. Our editor is Naomi Starbin. Thank you to Zig, Carolyn, Alfred, Bob, Jean, and Charlie, and everyone who I interviewed for this entire series. Without their help, all this reporting would not have been possible. Our theme music was composed and recorded by Time on the String Sound Studio in Paducah, Kentucky. Other scoring was from APM Music. 
Marketing and sponsorship support comes from Dixie Lynn. Middle of Everywhere is a production of WKMS and PRX. This program is made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private organization funded by the American people.